Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, take them and turn to Matthew uh, chapter 20. I uh, read with interest uh, this week about an event that took place on a cold night last month in Times Square. Uh, Officer Lawrence DiPrimo was working a counterterrorism post there in Times Square when he encountered an older, barefooted, homeless man. Uh, The officer, as the story goes, the officer disappeared for a moment. The story uh, we find out later, he went to a shoe store there in Times Square and purchased a brand new pair of boots. He took that pair of boots and he knelt down next to the homeless man and he put them on his feet. Now that act of kindness would have gone totally unnoticed and probably have been forgotten had it not been from a tourist from Arizona. Uh, She took out her smartphone and her camera and she snapped a picture of that event on November 14th and she posted it to the New York City uh, Police Department's official Facebook page uh, last uh, Tuesday. And that made Officer DePrimo an overnight internet hero. It's amazing how that happens. Uh, by Wednesday evening, the reports are the post had been viewed 1.6 million times. And it attracted nearly 275,000 likes and more than 16,000 comments. And I thought to myself, well, that's a great story, but why would that picture... Uh, Uh, evoke that kind of response. I would tell you this morning that the reason it evoked that kind of response is because it's a story that stands in stark contrast to the cultural norm of our day. Police officers arrest bad guys and they keep the peace. They don't put shoes on homeless men in Times Square. In fact, if you've been to Times Square, you know very often they hurry them along and get them off of the street. See, in our culture, when you are in a position of authority, you are served. You do not serve. You don't get involved with the smelly feet of homeless people. Now, whether you or I would say that out loud or not, most people think and we act that way. Today is the last in our series that uh, we have entitled Politically Incorrect, uh, Statements of Jesus. The byline of our series has been, Jesus said what? And we've looked at statements that Jesus made while he was here on the planet that did not sit well with those that heard him say those things with their own ears. And and 2,000 years later, I would submit to you that for many of us, they still don't sit very well. And so I want to look this morning at one of Jesus' statements that's found in Matthew chapter 20. Uh, The context is this. For the past three years, Jesus has been teaching large crowds of people regularly. Uh, But you remember, if you're a student of the Bible, that um, most of his three years of ministry has really been focused on these 12 men that that we commonly refer to as his uh, disciples. He's been teaching these men. He's been been training these men. He's, He's chosen these men, and he's going to entrust them with the gospel message. They're the ones that are going to take the good news, the message of the gospel, to the ends of the globe. He, he's been teaching them the very nature of his kingdom, uh, which was very different from what these uh, men actually uh, wanted or they expected. He was teaching them about a, about a kind of life that they would need to live if they were going to be part of this kingdom. And now he's on his way to Jerusalem with these men, and 
He knows very well the events that are going to be taking place in the next several days, and he's been preparing his disciples for these things. They didn't like or understand what he was saying. In fact, I want to look quickly in verse 17 before we jump into our text this morning. Look at, look at verse 17. It says, And Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he'll be raised up. Now, those are pretty heavy words, are they not? Imagine the person that you had spent three years of your life with. He was your teacher. Imagine him coming alongside of you and him saying those things to you. Those would have been very troubling words, especially if you were a follower of Jesus. And yet for the third time, the Lord instructs the disciples about his coming death. And now he tells them, hey, we're going to go to Jerusalem and this is where this is going to take place. I want to ask you this morning, what would be your response if you were one of those disciples. Sometimes, if you remember reading in your Bibles correctly, sometimes they questioned him. (laughs) Can you imagine that? Jesus, is that really the plan? Does it really have to be that way? Oh, you're not going to die. Other times, uh, they responded in different ways, and this is one of those times. Look at verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, her name was Salome, her sons were James and John, She came to Jesus with her two sons, bowing down and making a request of him. Now, now you would think that after this third time that Jesus says, hey guys, I want to prepare you for this, here's what's going to happen, that this would have humbled the twelve, but instead, James and John, and more specifically, Matthew tells us, Mark says James and John, uh, Matthew kind of adds to the story, and then he says it wasn't just them, it was their mother as well. She comes to Jesus, and she's got a request for them. They hadn't learned yet the lesson that the cross has to come before the crown and that suffering comes before glory. Now, here's problem number one. When your mom is talking to your boss, you have a problem, right? You get that, right? Guys, let me say to you, those of you that play football, if your mom shows up on the field and starts talking to the coach, you have a problem, all right? You have a problem whenever moms do that. I was the official ball boy this year, and I heard parents screaming at the coaches. Moms are always best. They seem to have louder voices than some dads that I know. When mom comes to the boss, there's something going wrong. My question, and I don't know if you've ever read this text and thought this. Maybe you haven't. It's just been one of those, that was my devotion for the day, and I read those verses, and I prayed and went on with my day. But, but, but think about this for just a moment. Why is mom even there? Why is she there? I mean, these are grown men. Remember, for several of these men, Jesus had called them out of their occupations. These weren't toddlers. They weren't grade school kids. These were grown men, some of them rugged fishermen. And yet here's Salome, she comes up to Jesus and and she says, hey, I've I've got a question for you. Verse 21, and he said to her, what do you wish? (laughs) Now the problem sometimes with reading, you probably get this in when you're reading a book, you don't necessarily know the tone of voice in which he said that in. I can only imagine, uh, probably knowing the rest of the text here, Jesus was very gentle with her. 
And he responded to her in a kind manner. And she said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. That's all I want. It's like a mom right in the middle of a football game going down, talking to the coach and saying, Coach, excuse me, excuse me. I know you got to call the play, but come here for just one. In fact, call a timeout. Come here for just one moment. Hey, I, just one, one question. You know, I'm the mom of the guy that plays wide receiver, and I got another son that plays running back. Could you use them both in the next play and make stars out of them? Could you do that? That would mean an awful lot to me. Excuse me, sir. Just one question that I have for you. <laughs> Can you imagine it? Do you have the gravity of what's happening here? Now, actually, Salome and her two sons, James and John, were actually claiming the promise that Jesus had talked about in the previous chapter, in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28, that the disciples would sit on thrones with the Lord Jesus. And so it actually took a great deal of faith on their part to claim the promise, especially since Jesus had just reminded them of his death. Now, a lot of commentaries bring this up in their study of this text, and yet I would say to you that their faith was not in the kind of kingdom that Jesus was establishing. Their faith was in a kingdom, as we'll see here in just a moment, that provided military and political power. It provided a sphere of influence for for them. But the three of them evidently were in agreement, and they had his word to encourage them, they thought, and so there was no reason why Jesus should not grant their request. We asked first, right? Nobody else has asked. We asked first. I got two sons, you got a right-hand throne and a left-hand throne, why can't it be my boys? See, the problem is they were asking for selfish reason. It's interesting that in Matthew's account and in Mark's account, Jesus never condemns their ambition. It's the motivation of their ambition. They were asking for selfish for selfish reasons. Paul wrote to the church at Philippi in chapter 2 of his letter when he said, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Regard the other person as more important. And so rather than grasping what Jesus had said to them over and over again about his kingdom, that it wasn't of this world, they expected him to go down to Jerusalem to set up his kingdom militarily and politically. And and they were basically saying, hey, when you enter into your glory, um, we want to be part of that deal. After all, we've been following you along for three years. We put up with these snotty-nosed little kids who you told us not to hinder from being part of you. Those kids wiped their nose on our robes. They did all kinds of things to us. We put up with all this humiliation. Hey, we deserve something. It's really easy for us, isn't it, to say, those bad, bad boys. And yet I want you to stop for just a moment and ask yourself, do we behave that way on a regular basis? I've got my rights. They assumed that they would have a prominent place because, after all, they were, by their own acknowledgement, they were superior to the others. And if James and John didn't think it, certainly their mom thought so, right? My son's a much better wide receiver than that guy you got out there. He should be the one catching the ball. My son can run faster. He's stronger. He should be the one that's... After all, they're superior. 
And so their attitude was, hey, let's go ahead and settle this now. Who's the greatest? We are, and we want you to acknowledge that by sitting us one on your left hand and one on the right hand. There's really nothing subtle about their request. What they're saying is, we want to be famous, we want to be important. Jesus has just told them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. They were getting a glimpse of the picture of what Jesus' kingdom was all about. And yet all they could think about was their own agenda. How can we be famous? How can we be important? And rather than asking for faith to stand for truth in the days that were ahead of them, they want respect, they want acclaim, they want privilege. Now look at the way that Jesus refers answers them. I've asked myself this week, how would I respond if I would have been Jesus? I asked myself that during football season when I hear parents yelling at coaches, thinking, oh, you should be glad I'm not the coach. Jesus responded like a gentle coach. Look at verse 23, but Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? The cup refers to his submission to the Father's will and becoming sin for us, hanging and bleeding and suffering and and dying on a cross. And the baptism refers to his suffering on the cross for the sins of the world. That was going to be a a gruesome, horrible experience for him. Even Jesus said, if you remember when he prayed in the garden, what did he pray? If there's any other way for this to happen, let's do that. (laughs) Let's go to plan B. And notice what James and John said to him at the end of the verse. We are able. (laughs) Isn't that just like the disciples we've come to know and love? We're able. We can do that. We're happy to do that. Verse 23, he said to them, my cup you shall drink. I love it how Jesus says things, and sometimes when we're reading through a text, we can kind of just miss the, the, the impact of that. But they're saying to him, Hey, if that's what it takes to get on the left, get on the right, if that's what it takes to be the the big boy sitting next to the king in his kingdom, we are willing to do that. And so Jesus says to them, and I think he says it very gently, very softly, he says, my cup you shall drink. That day is going to come. If you remember in the book of Acts, chapter 12 and verse 2, James is going to be the first one who is going to be martyred. And John, if you know your history, would experience Roman persecution at the end of his long life. We read about that in the book of Revelation. I would say to you, be careful how you pray. Be careful what you say. Be careful what you ask God for because God may very well give you that opportunity. It's so very easy for us to say, God, make me this kind of person. And when he says, if you want to be that kind of person, are you willing to go through this? And it's very easy for us to say, count me in, happy to do it. And then when the trials come, when the tribulations come, it's quite a different thing. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and my left, that's not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Verse 24, and hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. If you ever wondered if the disciples were wired just like us, here's your answer. Basically, they're ticked off. The ten of them are looking at James and John and their mom. (laughs) Do you have the mental picture yet? You know, she's probably some little short Jewish woman, and 
She's looking up at her two boys, you know, she's got her arms around their waist. And then the other ten disciples are looking at her and her two sons. And the text says, I I love this, the ten were indignant. Notice they're indignant with the brothers, (laughs) not the mom. It's hard to get indignant towards a mom, isn't it? They couldn't believe that James and John were asking that question. Or here's my theory. It wasn't that they couldn't believe that James and John were asking that question. It was, I think, that they were upset because they hadn't asked Jesus the question first. Aren't we so quick to get upset or turned off, repulsed by people who behave just like us? Have you noticed that? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or even nod your heads, but how many of you as parents have found yourself in a situation where you are boldly in the face of one of your kids and deep down the Spirit of God whispers to you, you're just like them. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but if we were honest, most of us would raise our hands. We're quick to get upset, turned off, repulsed by the behavior of people, and especially when the behavior is is so much like the way we behave. The reason we're so good at detecting the behavior in them is that we are so often marked by the exact same actions. In fact, I've begun to realize in my life, whether people that know me well or not believe it, I, I really have, That when I am so quick to criticize somebody else, I'm learning the lesson after 46 years of life. I'm I'm getting there where I'm going. Am I guilty of the same thing? You might do well to do the same thing. When you find yourself gossiping or critical of somebody else and, and their behavior, it might do well before you open up your mouth. It might do well for you to say, God, am I guilty of the exact same thing? Because so often we are, and that's why we're so it's, it's so easy for us to detect that in somebody else. Look with, with me quickly if you have your Bible there, and I hope you do, at Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, in verse 33, very similar context. They had been traveling through Galilee and had come to Capernaum. And on the way, Jesus had also been instructing them about his eventual death and his resurrection. And evidently, we know from this text that they weren't really listening to him. Kind of like one of those conversations you have with a person where you're sitting at lunch with them or, and you're looking at them and they're going, uh-huh, uh-huh, oh, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. And every once in a while you're just going, I don't think they're listening, right? It's one of those things that's happening. Jesus is talking to them, talking to them about pretty important stuff. And when they get where they're going, he says to them, what were you discussing on the way? <laughs> You ever been driving along and, and, and your kids are in the back seat and, and they're talking and you can't get the whole thing, but, but you're just picking up bits and pieces of it and later on you go, what was that all about? That's kind of what's taking place here, okay? Only Jesus wasn't driving a minivan, I don't think. But, that, but that's kind of what's taking place here. And they get where they're going and Jesus says, not like he doesn't know, right? He's the son of God. He knows. He says, what were you talking about when we were, we were traveling? Look at verse 34. It says, but they kept silent. I like that. It reminds me of a a verse in Proverbs that says, even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent. Kids, if your parents have never taught you that principle, that's a great one right there. Even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent. The disciples were playing that card here. They kept silent. For on the way they had discussed with one another, what? Which one's going to be the greatest? Can't you see it? 
Can't you see it now? They're walking along the way. Jesus is going, hey, we're going to be going to Jerusalem, and, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to, I'm going to be, provide the redemption for hum, humanity, and three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. Sounds like big stuff, right? And there, instead, in back of him going, no, no, it's me. I'm greater than, oh, come on, I'm so much better than you. Jesus loves me so much more than he loves you. When you did that the other day, when you gave that little seminar, when Jesus was doing the main session and you were over here doing that seminar, you stunk. I mean, I have it. That special music that I sung a few weeks ago, you know, when I got up and sang, oh, I'm so, I'm so much better than you. And if you're Jesus, you're going, wait a second. In literally days, I'm going back to heaven and I'm leaving the gospel with these men. These are some of the things that I want to discuss in heaven. Just want to ask. I just want to know. Jesus, did you ever hear, have these thoughts? Now, they were obviously, when Jesus asked that question, they were obviously embarrassed. I mean, think about it. Here, here were men who were getting intensive training from the greatest example of humility and servanthood. And now they're involved in an all-out catfight about who was the best. Sounds like an argument like we used to have in grade school on the playground, doesn't it? But no, these are grown men with whom Jesus is entrusting the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. If you turn over to Luke chapter 22, we see the same debate. Jesus has his last supper with them. You know when we take communion? It's one of those moments. It's right before he goes to the cross, and then in verse 24 we read that there arose a dispute over what? Who's going to be the greatest? These guys just couldn't get enough of it. Who's the most important? And you know what I would submit to you this morning? That nothing seems to have changed in 2,000 years, has it? It was true then and it's true today. We're hardwired in our sinful condition to be concerned about us. Well, we might not openly argue about this, but if, you, if you're like me, you inwardly compare yourself to other people and you look for opportunities to be in the best position, the most important, just like the disciples did. It's that five-letter word that creeps into our lives every chance it gets. It's called pride. See, one teacher has defined pride this way. Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their total dependence upon him. This teacher went on to say that whenever he realizes that he's acting in a prideful way, he said, rather than simply confessing it to another person, he said, I take the time to acknowledge before God what I just did was contending for supremacy with you. John Calvin wrote, God cannot bear with seeing his glory appropriated by the creature, even in the smallest degree. So intolerable to him is the sacrilegious arrogance of those who, praising themselves, obscure his glory as far as they can. In fact, James wrote it in James chapter 4 and verse 6, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Look at verse 25, Jesus called them to himself. He was gentle and kind in his response. It was another mark of him being a humble servant leader. I've thought a lot this week about what I might have said to those men at that particular moment and to their mom. 
Trust me, I wouldn't have been as nice. But Jesus says, when he calls them to himself, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. He's basically saying to them this, listen, men, I get it. I know the way the rest of the world behaves. I've been here for 33 long years, 30 of which I lived in total obscurity. Nobody knew who I was. I listened to the little fights on the playground. I listened to it in the neighborhood. I've watched it growing up. I've, 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 I've been in business in my, in my dad's workshop. I know the way that this happens. And like many people today, the disciples were making the mistake of following the wrong examples. Instead of modeling themselves after the very essence, the very picture of humility, of servanthood, they were admiring the glory and the authority of the Roman rulers, men who loved the Lord over them with their position and with their authority. By the way, lest we think, well, that's something that happens out there. Our, 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 Our corrupt politicians do that. People in government do that. People in powerful Fortune 500 companies do that. Let me tell you, the problem is, and this is the reason why we talk to the church today, because the problem is, we behave that way as the body of Christ. And look what Jesus says in verse 26. It's not this way among you. That's probably the politically incorrect statement when he says, hey, it's not to be this way with those of you that are followers of me that are looking forward to this kingdom that is not of this earth. What a huge message in just a few words. If we're followers of Jesus, we play by different rules. It's not about us. It's all about him. And Jesus is using this embarrassing event as an opportunity once again to teach his disciples again the importance of humble service in the name of Jesus. He gives them again the same principles which he's taught them over and over and over again as they have walked, as they've traveled together. And he says this, look at the end of verse 26, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you should be your slave. And who's your example? Verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, God's pattern in Scripture for a person who would, would, would have greatness is that he first learned to be a servant of all. God promotes us as we serve. This was true of Joseph. It was true of Moses, it was true of Joshua, it was true of David, it was true of the young pastor Timothy, and certainly it was true of Jesus himself. Here's the bottom line. Our world says that when we become great, that we will be served. Jesus says if you want to be great, then you have to serve. Do you want to be great for God's glory? You see here, I'm not asking the question, do you want to be great? Do you want to have a name? Do you want to be great? Do you want to be you so that God, your heavenly father, the one who loved you enough that sent his son Jesus to suffer, bleed, and die on a cross, that you might be reconciled to him? It's all about his glory. Do you want to be great so that he receives glory? If you do, you have to serve rather than be served. That's what you have to do. 
You have to serve rather than be served. You see how politically incorrect that is? Because when you are great, you should be served. And yet Jesus says, no, if you want to be great, the mark of being great is learning to be the servant or the slave of everybody. I thought this week, as I studied these passages that I'm so familiar with, I thought how easy it is to preach this message. It really is. It's so easy to stand up in front of people like you and preach something like this. i got to confess it. So easy. I know the principles so well. I can preach it. I can teach it in my sleep. You know where the difficulty comes? Living it. You with me there? Many of you would say, yeah, I'll take your place. I'd love to be sitting down here and me spitting on you rather than you doing that to me. I know you would. Again, I'm preaching to myself. You got to understand, I got to spend hours in the text before I get up here and, 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 and present it to you. So imagine what God is able to do in my heart during those hours. So often when I, when I study a text like this, as I've done this week, and, and I, I sense the Spirit of God saying to me, you hypocrite. You're going to get up and tell them they should be that way. Does that mark your life as a leader? Easy to preach, hard to live. In our last few moments here, I want to tell you how to live in a great way in real life. I don't know if you ever come to church and you listen to somebody yell at you for a half hour or 45 minutes, and you walk out and you go, so what? Right? I'm asking that question all the time, by the way. When we give God's word to you, so what? Our idea here at Northwest is not that we develop smarter sinners. You get that? It's easy to do, right? Maybe you've been in churches like that. They give you lots of meat, and you feel really good because you had meat and potatoes and some good vegetables. And you walk out, and you are just as sinful as when you walked in. You are a smarter sinner, but you have no intention of changing your way. We're not interested in that. We're only interested in teaching you biblical truth so that it transforms your life. Do you get that? That's what we're about. And so how do we live in a great way in real life? Number one, I think it it begins in the home. Does it not? Because you see, in our house, people know who we really are, don't they? (laughs) That's what's unfortunate. Ladies, have you ever walked into church and had somebody go, oh, your husband's such a wonderful man, and you're going, really? (laughs) This one or that? No. You're going, really? Because I live with the dude. I mean, I know the way that he talked to me just on the way to church. What is wrong with you? And by the way, lest we just beat up on the men, the same thing is true of women. Oh, your wife is such a sweetheart. And you're going, really? Really? You see, the home, how we behave at home is really who we are. It really is, if you think about it. It's not how you behave necessarily when you get out in front of people. I think pastors of all people have to be careful with this. Let me tell you how greatness in the home is defined. Greatness in the home is defined by the parent who faithfully cares for the needs of their family while receiving little to no appreciation. You ever feel like that, moms and dads? Moms, you ever feel that way? I think about the moms in our uh, body that are taking care of on a daily basis, kids with special needs. That's how greatness is defined in the home. You're great because you learn to be the servant of all. 
the slave to all people. It's the wife who cares for the physical needs of her husband who can no longer care for himself. You say, that's not great. No, that's greatness. God says, that's greatness. When you serve rather than being served. It's the dad who comes home from work physically exhausted and yet finds the time and the energy to help around the house and meet the needs of the rest of the family rather than plopping himself down in front of a TV set for several hours where he falls asleep and stumbles to bed a few hours later. That's greatness in the home. And greatness in the home, by the way, is the older brother and sister that serves the younger brother or sister. I saw that this morning. <laughs> Not going to name names, but I saw kids walk in, and I saw one little one right behind, and the door kind of went shut. Greatness is defined by the sibling that goes back and opens the door for that little one who can't open the door for himself. That's how God defines greatness. You look at that and you say that's insignificant. No, that is God's definition of greatness. And we ought to aspire to it. It's the older sister that goes over to the cafe table and the little kid can't get up and put some uh, butter on his bagel and she butters his bagel. That's how greatness is defined in the home. How about the workplace? This is the place where we as followers of Jesus have the greatest opportunity to demonstrate authentic Christianity. I really believe that. And yet so often, rather than giving credibility to the difference that Jesus has made in our lives, we do just the opposite. We destroy credibility by the way that we do or don't do our jobs. See, our culture screams this all the time. We have rights. As a result of our culture screaming that, we now have no ho-hos or ding-dongs. You understand that, right? What has the world come to when there's no ho-hos, when there's no ding-dongs because people have rights? As followers of Jesus, our right is to live in a way in the workplace that we bring glory to Jesus. Nothing more. That's it. That's our right. That is greatness redefined. Greatness in the workplace is defined as the one who works the hardest, who stays late when nobody else will because a job needs to get done, who does the task that nobody else wants to do. That's how God defines greatness in the workplace. Let me challenge you, people of Northwest, be that kind of employee. Do that. People will go, what's wrong with you? They're not going to pay you more for that. And you're going, I know. But that's greatness to bring glory to Jesus by the way that I do my job. Greatness at school. Greatness at school is defined by the teacher who serves those students, who loves even those that are in her class that are the most unlovable. That's how greatness is defined. We have teachers right here this morning, and that's how greatness will be defined for you. It's not what you do when the crowds are looking, when all the parents are looking. It's what you do with the hearts of those little children that are in your classroom in those moments. It's the student who takes an interest in the 
student that nobody else likes, that everybody else jokes about and laughs about and makes life miserable. Greatness is defined when you learn to be the servant. How about in our community? How about in our neighborhood? How is greatness defined? Greatness is not defined by you having the best yard on the block and making sure that you're out there and you got your little chains on the outside so that no little kid steps off into your lawn and nobody... No, greatness is defined when you are known as the person who serves in the neighborhood. Nobody will ever be great in God's kingdom who has the lawn of the month, necessarily. All right, you could... You could be the servant of all and be great and have the lawn of the month, but it probably is not going to happen, right? God's not concerned about those things. And how about in our faith community? How about in the context of the local church? What does our culture say? Our church culture says, man, the, the one who's the greatest is the one. They've been arguing about it since Corinth, right? It's the one who gets to get up here and he sits here, he stands here, and he proclaims the truth. He's the great one. No, 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 no. No, greatness in the church is defined by the one who serves all people. Greatness in the church is what I saw this morning when, when somebody uh, said to my in-laws when they came in uh, this morning, hey, you missed your coffee, and they said, we've got to get to our class. And they said, no problem, we'll get it and bring it to you. That's how God defines greatness in the local church. Greatness in the local church is that businessman who makes lots of money and he has lots of authority in the workplace, but when he comes here on Sunday morning, he's changing baby filters back there in the nursery. That's how God defines greatness, friends. That's how he does it. You and I don't. You say, no, it's really cool what he does in the workplace, though, and how he leads that company and how he's, he's brought them to a strong bottom line, and yet God says, that doesn't matter to me. That matters to me. When you serve others, that's what matters to me. That's how I define greatness. Greatness in the local church is those people that are back there right now. It's the elder that's back there right now that's on the floor with little kids and he's asking them questions and telling them stories. It's not his power in a boardroom where he's making decisions about this church. That is not greatness. Greatness is defined by serving. Charles Spurgeon said this, True humility is thinking rightly of thyself, not meanly. When you found out what you really are, you'll be humble. For you're nothing to boast of. Only Charles Spurgeon could say it that way, right? To be humble will make you safe. To be humble will make you happy. To be humble will make music in your heart when you go to bed. To be humble here will make you wake up in the likeness of your master by and by. That's what Spurgeon said. You may be gifted your nothing without the enablement of your God. You might be the boss someplace. Thank God that he entrusted you with that authority and don't abuse it. Or your position. Bring glory to him by serving others rather than ruling over them. You might be here this morning and you may be beautiful. Your creator made you that way and it won't last, so don't get attached to it. You might be wealthy. Don't boast in it. It's not yours. You've been blessed. And you've been blessed in order that you might be a blessing to others. It's not yours. Anything you or I ever are, have, or will accomplish in this life, we will do those things and be those things because of the grace that has been extended to us by our great God. You understand that? The life that we live is because of grace. We didn't choose Christ. He chose us. 
were not our own. Our redemption came at a cost of God's Son, Jesus, on the cross at Calvary. You have no reason to glory in yourself, only to glory in the cross of Christ. And that's why Paul said, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's greatness. So here's the big idea. Live each day with a correct understanding of who God is and who you are in light of that knowledge. Isn't that true? When I recognize who God is, and I recognize who I am in light of who he is, that causes me to live in a different way. That's greatness redefined. And, and I, pray, I, I pray that that will mark my life. Probably won't mark many of your lives if it doesn't mark my life and it doesn't mark the other leaders in our ministry here at Northwest. I get that. I want to be great by God's definition. By deflecting glory to him. The one who gives and sustains abundant life.